Well, it's good to be back with you all this morning. I appreciate the uh, the warm hospitality that has been shown to me by the congregation, by the Frishes last night putting me up. Uh, it is a joy to be down here with you all. I contemplated switching up topic material this morning in light of South Carolina's win last night and think, thinking about the eschatological implications of the Gamecocks beating a ranked uh, Tennessee team, but we're going to stick with Joel, I think, uh, for the time being. I don't want to get called out by James or by the Presbytery. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open that back up to Joel. Uh, we, we paused or finished last night at the halfway mark of the book. We looked in the first session last evening at chapter 1 in its entirety. Then in the second part, we looked at the first half of Joel chapter 2. And so this morning, we're going to pick back up with the second half of that second chapter of Joel. So we'll be looking at Joel chapter 2 verses 18 through 32 uh, this morning during Sunday school. Before we get to it, um, let me just get you thinking for a moment. What kind of person are you? You know, there's that old um, uh, metric that's been designed to kind of figure out if you're a positive person or a negative person, and it's all about asking, are you a half glass full or half glass empty kind of person? When you look at a glass that's 50% contained, um, do you see it as being partly full or partly empty? That's sort of how we view life. People are either optimists or they're pessimists. But when we, when we consider God's economy, when we consider um, people standing before God, there is no such thing as a glass being half full or half empty. In God's economy, your glass is either empty, bone dry, or it's filled to the point of overflowing. We might even think of the words of David in the psalm who speaks of, in Psalm 23 of, My cup runneth over. Those are the only two standings we have before God. A glass that is completely empty or a glass that is so full it is pouring out over the edge. Well, last night what we saw in the book of Joel regarding the nation of Judah was a people whose glass was bone dry. You remember how in chapter 1 there was that plague of locusts that just decimated the land. And then in the first half of chapter 2, God used that as a warning that if they did not repent, if they did not turn back to Him, He was going to utterly destroy them by sending a foreign army against them. And so last night was glass completely empty. Not even empty, but a glass that was about to be completely shattered. Well, Everything shifts today. As we come to this second half of chapter 2, everything changes. Rather than that stark and grim emptiness that we saw last night, everything comes to the point of fullness and even overabundance. Rather than judgment, which was all we heard it seemed last night, we now see God's grace being lavishly poured out onto this people. God has promised that not only would He restore His people, but He would give them blessing beyond the point of abundance. They would have an overabundance. And so what we see is that God doesn't just stop at mercy, but He also pours out His grace, giving the people more than they deserve. 
And so really, our passage this morning is a celebration of grace. And what I want you to see then is that this isn't just Judah's story. What we're reading in Joel isn't some some old story that has no connection with us today. This isn't just Judah's story. This is our story as well. This is the story of God's grace to a bunch of undeserving sinners. And that's what the Bible is all about. Any and every time we read a passage like this in Scripture, we need to recognize that it's pointing us ahead to Jesus Christ. It's pointing us ahead to the grace that He has shown us in His cross and in outpouring of His Holy Spirit. And so we don't come to the book of Joel this morning thinking this has no purpose, no meaning, no connection to my life. Instead, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have looked to Him in faith, then this is a passage that you can celebrate today. This is a passage that tells your story as well. To me, this is one of those those passages that, that if you leave here not satisfied, it's your fault. (laughs) Because God has set a table of abundance for us this morning. And all we have to do is take it all in. Because it's an amazing word of mercy and grace and blessing. So all that said, let me read for us then, Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, and going through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord became jealous for His land, and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that is new every morning, and we thank you for the way we see it so clearly here in this section of Joel. From the judgment and warning of coming judgment last night in the first half, there's a complete transformation here this morning. And we thank you for how refreshing it is to our ears to hear of your grace and your goodness and your lavish abundance. We thank you that we sit in the full revelation of that through Jesus Christ, that we have enjoyed already in part your gracious goodness to us. And so help us then to see it afresh this morning. Help us to celebrate it, to revel in it today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last night, for those of you who were here with us, I realized that the book of Joel, along with many of the other minor prophets in the Old Testament, are usually fairly unfamiliar source material for us. It's not the sort uh, a section of the Bible that we go to very frequently. But, but the storyline of Joel, that is the basic theme that we see here, is actually fairly well known to all of us. In some ways, what we see in the book of Joel is a miniature version of what we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. For instance, in, in the book of Judges, where we see that God had, had chosen the people for Himself. He had blessed them with land and with abundance and, and peace and comfort. And over time, that people got a little bit fat, happy, and lazy and began to forget who had given them all of those things. And so we see in the book of Judges that the people over and over again, how many times do we see that cycle play out in the book of Judges where God's people wander away? Where they they chase after the the gods of the surrounding nations, they abandon faithfulness to the Lord, and as a result, God would raise up some sort of oppressor, whether a, a marauding band of raiders or another nation or something else, God would raise up an opposition and, and they would come and, and overrun God's people. And to the point where where in their misery, the people of God would cry out for help and God would raise up one of the judges who would rescue the people and the people would return to a place of covenant faithfulness with the Lord until the pattern starts over again. Well, the most amazing thing to me in that pattern that we see in the book of Judges, that pattern that we see in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, what's amazing to me about it all is God's patience. God is a very patient. He is a very long-suffering God. And He continues to show show grace and mercy to His rebellion-prone children. And and even when things reach the tipping point, even when, when, when... Judah had gone that step too far. And God finally raised up the Babylonians to come in and and destroy Jerusalem and and wreck the temple. Even then, God had not completely cut off His people. Even in His judgment in that final scene of, of Babylon coming in, God still had a gracious plan for His people. You think about those famous words from Jeremiah chapter 29 that I feel like everybody has read at their wedding now, which is fine. It's a great verse. But in in, in Jeremiah chapter 29 in verses 10 and 11, the context isn't, isn't us. The context is Israel in its exile or Judah in its exile. And God says, 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. And that is a wonderful promise that God makes, but but do you know what follows? There is a caveat to that promise. This plan, this hope, this future that God has is dependent upon His people doing something. And it's what we find in that next verse, in verse 12, when God says, Then you will call upon Me, and you will come and pray to Me, and I will hear you. You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your what? Heart. This is what God wants from His people. That we would be devoted to Him. That we would seek Him with all our heart. Well, when we come to this place in the book of Joel, it appears that something like this has happened. When we left last night, there was nothing really but but the fear and the specter of judgment against Judah. God had, through Joel, He had called on them to repent. He had called on them to turn from their wicked ways and He would relent. But, but really, the, the resounding word in our mind was one of judgment. God was going to come and deal with this people because of their sin. But we come to verse 18 today and everything has changed. The mood, the tone of this book completely shifts. Instead of judgment, we hear of restoration. Instead of emptiness, we hear of fullness. And so what we see then, it appears that the people listened to Joel's warning. The people listened to what God had to say. They took it to heart. And and despite all their sin, despite all their rebellion, they repented of it. God heard their prayer and turns to them in favor. And this is something I think that, that we can relate to. Many of you in the room are parents. You've raised children. You know what it is to deal with children who are disobedient to you and how much that pains you and it requires corrective action. Uh, I think, you know, we, our, our daughter... Our daughter is a wonderful little girl. She has Down syndrome, uh, which means she can have some very severe stubborn streaks from time to time. Um, and, and recently, she was having one of these days where no matter what we did, it was going to be no. She was going to tell us no. So Kristen and I were trying to figure out what's the most effective way to break this streak in her. Well, Sadie, that's our daughter, she loves music. And in her room, she has this little music player that's really easy for her to use. And she'll spend hours in there every day listening to music, singing along to it while she's playing with her dolls or looking at her book. Well, we finally figured out, okay, we're going to have to take her music away from her. And so sure enough, went in there, took out the music player, showed her and said, Sadie, this is going away because you've been stubborn, you've been disobedient. And you're not getting it back until you change your attitude. Well, sure enough, just a little while later, she came into our room and it was obvious she was sorry for what she had done. And so we told her, okay, we, we forgive you, we love you, but you're not getting this back yet. You're not getting this back until we see you know, evidence <laughs> that you're really sorry, that you're really turning away. And sure enough, the next day, she was a doll. Everything we did, or everything we asked, she did. Everything we, we said to her was, was immediate obedience. And so we were able to return to her, her music player, which just made her life. And she went running into her room, slammed the door, and listened to music for like the next three hours on end. But my point is, it, as parents, we don't relish in disciplining our children. It, I've learned, as many of you have, it, it hurts to have to discipline your children. It's not something we enjoy, but we do it 
because it's effective. We do it because it helps them to recognize their error and to turn away from it. And that's what God was doing with Judah. He had sent that plague of locusts to decimate the land to get their attention. Remember last night the message was wake up, wake up and and lament and, and turn. And they had. They got the message. They, they heard what they needed to hear. They turned in their hearts. And what God had taken away, kind of like with Sadie and the music player, he was now giving back. That's what we read of here in the second part of chapter 2. God is giving back everything he had removed from them. If you were here last night, you heard some of this. It's, it's interesting that, uh, for instance, he says in this passage, in verse 19, he says, Behold... I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And that's significant because in chapter 1, in verse 10, it says the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, and the oil languishes. Those three things, grain, wine, and oil, were some of the things that had specifically been removed from the people And some of the very first words God says is, I am restoring these. I am sending them back to you and you will be satisfied. You see, last night we saw that they really had been emptied. Their crops were destroyed. Their wine was gone. Their security was gone. Even their ability to worship in the temple had been removed. But now as they have repented, as they've turned away, not only have they found forgiveness and mercy, but God is restoring it all back to them. And again, this isn't, He's just kind of filling their cup up halfway so they can be optimists again. He is filling their cup to the point of running over. And this outpouring of grace comes in two waves. The first is uh, in verses 18 through 27, the bulk of what we looked at. And it's, it's God restoring the, the, the resources, the felt needs, the material possessions of the land and doing so in amazing ways. And then the second is in that greater promise of an outpouring of spiritual blessing. But again, let's, let's look at the material blessings that God promises first. And the first thing that we notice here in verse 18 is that the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. Now, Lord here in your Bibles is all capitals, which is a signal for us that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And Yahweh, we're told, became jealous for His people. Remember, God had a covenant with these people. They were His special people, His chosen people, His particular people. And now that they've repented, He is become jealous for them. He wants good for them. He remembers them. He turns His face back towards them. And He begins to once again give them blessing. Deuteronomy 28 that I referenced last night has all those promises that God would bless His people if they walked in faithfulness before Him. He had taken those away. But now in this passage, we begin to see Him restoring those. And so again, we see things like the the grain and the wine and the oil being replenished. God says also that that you will be satisfied. Twice actually in this passage, He speaks of them being satisfied. But this satisfaction isn't based based in what, what they have done, nor ultimately in these material things themselves. But as God goes on to say in verse 26, you will praise the name of the Lord who has dealt wondrously with you. Now, this hadn't always been the case with Judah. We know that their pursuit of satisfaction had often led them 
to chase after other gods, to, to embrace immoral deeds, and, and even to look to other things for a sense of security, which had been stripped away from them. And while it had been harsh that God had sent this plague of locusts, while the judgment God had threatened was harsh, it was also redeeming because it did wake them up. It opened their eyes and it enabled them to see how hollow their pursuits had been. And it led them back to God who demonstrated once and for all that it was only in Him that they would find true satisfaction. It was only in God that their hearts would be filled. And so this leads me to then ask the question, are you satisfied in the Lord? You know, one of the things that the last couple years has done for us, it's, it has stripped away some of our old securities uh, through, through COVID, through shutdown, through um, you know, loss of, of privileges or whatever else it might be. We have lost some of our securities. Even the, even the current economic downturn, for those of you who have uh, invested funds and those kinds of things, you just see them continue to drop. The things we perhaps put our security and our future and our hope in, all that's kind of been removed from us. And we're realizing over these last couple of years just how out of control we actually are over our own lives and over the futures of our own lives. And it has to lead us to ask the question, where do we, at the end of the day, where do we fully put our trust? If it's in government, if it's in our bank account, if it's in our own health, if it's in any of these things, we're going to be found wanting and lacking because we've learned that any of these things can disappoint and even go away. Are we really and truly satisfied in the Lord and in His provision? Are we chasing hard after Him and the promises that He has made to us? Or are we still holding on to the things of this earth as if they are what's going to give us ultimate peace in life? This is what Judah struggled with, but to a greater degree perhaps than we are right now, and yet it still requires us to do some self-examination. Where is our trust? Well, what we see here in this passage is God is just getting started by returning these material possessions. Not only was the Lord going to give abundant provision, but then we see as we move in through this chapter that God was also going to remove their enemies from them. The threat had been, just as the locusts had come in and wiped out the land, so God was then going to send this invading army that would come in and devastate Judah. But in verse 20, God says, I will remove the northerner far from you, and I will drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the sea. I will destroy, I will wipe him away. God is going to destroy. He is going to remove any threat from Judah. And as he does so, he speaks this word of comfort. He says in verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Now, you've heard those kinds of verses in the Bible all your life. That sounds like something you might read in the book of Psalms that we should fear not, that we should be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. It sounds like it's taken straight out of one of the Psalms. But read it and hear it in light of what God had been telling the people in the first half of this book. God had been telling them to tremble because He was about to bring devastation on the land. God had been telling them to weep and to lament. And now He's saying, be glad. Do not weep, but rejoice. 
It's a complete change in their outlook, a complete change in their perspective. The pastures, remember last night, the pastures that had been wiped out by the locusts, that, that fire that would sweep through and leave nothing but destruction in its path, those pastures are now lush and green. The vines and the trees that had been stripped bare, we're told, are now full of fruit. The threshing floors are full of grain. The vats were overflowing with wine and oil. Do you see what God's doing here? God is restoring the land. He is restoring His people. He is bringing times of refreshment upon them. In verse 25, He says, I am restoring to you the years that the locusts have taken away. You think about that for a minute. We read Joel in about 20 minutes. Those three chapters, 15, 20 minutes is all it takes. But the timeline represented is years. It's massive. If a plague of locusts, like we read about last night, comes through and wipes out all the crops, all the vegetation, not just the yearly plants, but the trees as well, that is a multi-year disaster. And God is saying here, I am now restoring to you the years that were taken away from you. Because of your sin, because of my judgment, you languished for years, but now you have repented, and I'm going to restore, I'm going to give back to you the years that you lost. God didn't have to do that. (laughs) He didn't have to be gracious to this people, but He was. And then in verse 27, He says, You will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. The material abundance that God was giving was not an end into itself, but it was to point the people to the spiritual reality that their God, Yahweh, was with them. That they had returned to Him with all their heart, and He was once again with them. And only in Him could they find true satisfaction. And that then leads to the greater and the bigger promise in verse 28 through 32. I mentioned last night that most of you probably don't know a whole lot about the book of Joel, but I know you're familiar with what we heard at the end of this passage just a few moments ago. If you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, if you're familiar at all with the day of Pentecost, you know that Peter quotes from Joel in that day. Because in this passage, God is promising an amazing thing. He says, It will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. God was not only giving them stuff. He was not only giving them material blessings But he was also promising a coming day of spiritual blessings, the likes of which none of them had ever seen before. When we study the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit at work. But we see Him at work in particular people who had particular positions. The Holy Spirit we read in the Old Testament comes on people like the judges or a prophet or a priest or a king. Never do we see the Holy Spirit outpoured on the people as a whole. Instead, we read about Him coming on to particular men in their particular positions. And now here in Joel, God is declaring that there is a day soon 
when not just these particular people, but all His people will receive the Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry, uh, in his commentary on this passage, puts it this way. He says, We often read in the Old Testament of the Spirit of the Lord coming in drops, as it were, upon the judges and the prophets whom God raised up for extraordinary service. But now the Spirit will be poured out plentifully in a full stream. No longer would would only select leaders receive the Holy Spirit, but God is promising that all peoples, regardless of age, regardless of gender, even regardless, as we're going to see in Acts 2, of nationality, all people would receive this empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see fulfilled in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, when not only the 11 disciples or apostles who were gathered there together received those uh, uh, flames and tongues of flames, but, but the people who heard their message experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Thousands were converted on that day. And as God promised, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is true in our own lives as well. Judah's future hope here at the end of chapter 2 is our present reality. Have you ever thought about that? As you look at the promises of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, what was, what was their hope is our reality. The promise of the Holy Spirit has been fulfilled. Every one of you who has put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have experienced the fulfillment of this promise at the end of Joel 2. Everyone who has called on the name of the Lord is saved. And of course we recognize this is all grace. There is none of this that that we deserve. We're no better than than Judah or Israel before us. We're sinners just like they're sinners. We're we're prone to wander just like they were prone to wander. I think one of the dangers sometimes as we read the Old Testament is we look back at, at Israel and Judah and we see their faithlessness and we kind of shake our heads and think, oh, those foolish people. How could they be so blind to what God was doing to them? How could they miss? How could they ignore? How could they walk away when God had done all these amazing signs and wonders on their behalf? And we forget to look inward at ourselves and see how frequently we do the same thing. God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, who literally came to earth, who lived a perfect life, who died an atoning death, who was raised to new life for us. He has given us His Holy Spirit. And yet, how often do you and I, even with the Spirit of God, how often do we forget what God has done for us? How often do we embrace the the, the fleeting pleasures of this world as if they are more fulfilling and more satisfying than God Himself? So friends, don't look at the Old Testament saints with a jaded eye. Because when you read their story, you are understanding our own story. Their plight is our plight. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit before they were given the Holy Spirit. Yes, we can look back at the finished work of Christ while they were looking ahead in expectation to a coming Messiah. But their story is our story. Everything we have is by grace. It's not because we're better. It's because God has shown us his grace. The truth of the matter is, you and I, we deserve to be emptied of everything. We deserve that, that bone-dry glass that's about to be shattered. But instead, God has poured out abundant blessing in our lives. And the reason for this is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source. He is the wellspring of all of our blessings. 
through, through His perfect life, through His sacrificial death, He has made atonement for us. And I wonder if sometimes we, we lose sight of how glorious that promise is. We deserve nothing in this life. What we deserve is what we heard threatened last night in the first half of Joel. We deserve judgment. We deserve, we deserve devastation. But in Jesus Christ, God gives us everything we've read about today and more. And there's even more in store for us than this. Our, our present reality is pointing ahead to a future hope. Just as Judah's present reality was pointing forward to a hope that's been fulfilled for us in our day, so our reality is looking forward to a coming hope as well. I'm thinking about that day that the book of Revelation speaks of in the very end, in chapter 21, when it speaks of, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's our promised future. And that is far more than half glass full optimism. This is my cup runneth over glory. But if you're here today and and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, then that future hope is not yet yours. And if you desire that hope, if you desire a cup that runs over in abundance, it can be yours simply by looking to faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us as long as we we draw breath, today can be, today is the day of salvation. Why wait? Why put it off? No one knows when the Lord will come again. And so if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, do that today. Turn as the nation of Judah did. Turn away from your sin. Heed the warning and take hold of the promise that is yours in Jesus Christ. And friends, if you've done that already, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then this is your story. And that that good news in Revelation 21 of that day coming when we will dwell with God and there will be no more tears, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more want, there will be no more lack. Friends, celebrate that hope that is yours. It's not yet here, but it's coming. And it'll be ours forever. That's the hope. That's the good news of the gospel. So believe it and rest in its peace today and forevermore. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we thank You for good news. We live in a world that is marked with bad news. We live in a world that seems to be going further and further downhill morally and in every other way. And we might lift our eyes wondering, where is hope? Where is the promise? But we need to only look at Jesus Christ to see that hope and to see that promise. Lord, we thank You for the testimony of Judah here in the book of Joel how they heeded the warning, how they turned back to You in full hearts and repentance, and how You restored to them all that had been taken away. And what's more, You made these wonderful promises of pouring out Your Spirit. That is a promise that has been fulfilled in us through Jesus Christ. Right now, we have Your Spirit with us. And He is that down payment. He is the guarantee of a better day yet to come. A day that will have no end. A day when we will dwell with You for all of eternity. 
And so we thank you for this hope that you have given us in Jesus Christ, a new and living hope that is even now being kept, being stored in heaven, that is unfading and unperishing. So Lord, we would pray that it would be true of each of us in this room, that if there are any here this morning who have never placed their faith in you, who have never repented of sin and turned to you and grabbed hold of the promise that is in Jesus Christ, would this be the day that you break them of their sin? Would this be the day that you show them your glory? And for those of us who have, encourage us. Help us to be of good cheer. Help us to be able to live life each and every day for you in light of these promises. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.